So, do we celebrate Christmas? Which seems like a pretty obvious question to be asking in the church on a Christmas Eve service. The answer is right here, obviously. But several weeks ago, one of the people and remembers here at Christ Church asked me why a certain group of churches doesn't celebrate Christmas. And I was baffled. I don't know. I didn't, and I was quite intrigued. And so I went and I looked it up and did a little bit of research, and I found that there are several reasons why Christian churches choose not to celebrate Christmas. And the reasons are quite thought-provoking. One of them is that the season has, in their minds, has become inappropriately focused on getting presents and on Santa and on the decorations. Um, and, and, and in many ways, it just serves as a, as a magnifying of the things that are wrong with our culture in their eyes. And that was a very convicting reason. Um, Another is that there's the thought that December 25th is just an appropriation of a Roman pagan holiday and that it was just, there's no reason to, to be celebrating a pagan tradition with trees and lights and all of those things. And, and I've got a few thoughts about that, but that would take a while for me to kind of explain why I disagree with that statement. So if you'd like to hear the reasoning, I would love to talk about it. But suffice to say, that's another reason why they say, um, not to mention that December 25th probably was not the day that Jesus was actually born, so... Why are we doing it today? That's an interesting one. Uh, the Quakers have the, the, the reasoning that every day is a holy day. And so why should we be take one special day to celebrate Jesus when we should be doing that every single day of the year? Hmm, that's a convicting one too. In addition, the Bible doesn't say anything about having a holiday to celebrate Jesus' birth. The Bible has a lot of holidays, they have a lot of feasts, they have a lot of celebrations, but none of them commemorate Jesus' birth. Indeed, the earliest written account of the ministry of Jesus, the gospel written by Mark, doesn't even include the narrative of Jesus' birth in it, nor does the account written by Jesus' most beloved disciple, John. Instead, they start with the story of John the Baptist and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry when he was already an adult. So why do we make such a big deal out of Jesus' birth? Well, for that answer, I invite you to turn with me to the first chapter of John. It isn't the narrative story, but I, as you're turning there, I encourage you to start thinking about how this passage emphasizes the importance of Jesus' birth without explicitly talking about it. And also based on what John says there, what is the difference that he points out from before when Jesus was born to after he was born. All right, so we're going to turn to John chapter 1. We will be reading from verse 1 through verse 18. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, that will also be up on the screen so you can follow along with us. Let's dig in. John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came, bitten, he came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of, from, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. All right, let's pray before we start working through this. Dear Father, as we encounter your words through John, we ask for your help. Send your Holy Spirit to us so that as we are listening, thinking, working through, pondering, Lord, that you may be the one illuminating these scriptures to our hearts, that we may be changed by what we hear, by what we read, and by our encounter with you. Lord, may these words and these songs and all, everything that happens today and tonight and tomorrow be for your glory, not for our own. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so let's look. Starting there in verse 1, if you would, look with me. And it reads this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the movie The Book of Eli actually originally confused this as the beginning of the Bible. It's not, but you would be um, not amiss to confuse this because in the beginning are the same words at the beginning of Genesis. But in the beginning here in John, he says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word in Greek, the Greek word for that is logos, and which in Greek culture meant carried the meaning of logic or reasoning or the natural order of things. And so as John's writing, and for the common person reading this, most people, both then and even now, would be on board with what John's saying. Because in a sense, in their minds, he was saying, in the beginning was logic, and logic was with God, and logic was God. And that fit with the philosophy of the time and with much of our own philosophy now. But then John pulls this bait and switch. In verse 2 and 3, he says this, he, he was in the beginning with God. So this doesn't make sense because logic isn't a person. And all things were made through him. And without him not was not anything made that was made. All right, so now we're forced to go back and reevaluate what does this whole word thing mean. If he's not using it in the sense of logic although it included logic, what else was he saying? Well, John was pulling upon the Old Testament understanding of word and of the use of the word, the speech. Because the word, the speech, was with God, it was God, and he was in the beginning with God. He's talking about God's word. And God's word in the Old Testament, each and every time carried with it God's action. And so what John is telling us is that in the beginning, when space and time first came into existence, the manifestation of God's word, of God's action, already existed. And through him, everything was created and life was given and which is our light. And so as we'll see in a little bit, and of course, who else would we be talking about here on Christmas Eve? We're talking about Jesus. The word was Jesus. But verse 5 here is a key verse so often gets overlooked in this conversation. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When Jesus was born, what John is saying is that he was the manifestation, the incarnate of God's word in the flesh. But even more so, the difference between when Jesus was born to when he actually came out of the womb and was born is that now there is light in the darkness. Now, there's not many times that I've been in complete and utter darkness, so I don't have a whole lot of stories about this. But I do have a friend who went uh, on a tour of a cave. And uh, and I was talking to her about this, and, and she related how the guide went about halfway through this tour, and so they were deep down under the earth in the cave, and she stopped the group and had everyone turn off their headlamps and just sit for a moment in total and utter darkness. And my friend related just how terrifying that was. How that darkness felt heavy. How she lost her sense of equilibrium and she felt like she was falling over all the time. And even though the group had lights that they could turn on and that were working, there weren't any problems with that. Even that thought of a possibility that they could end up in total and complete darkness. Somehow everything could malfunction. Somehow everything could go wrong and they could be in this position again with no ability to find their way out sent her anxiety through the roof as it would mine. And now she she vows that she will never go into a cave again because of that experience. But what she was feeling in that moment was the reality, as John describes it, of the world before Jesus was born. Where there once was complete darkness, through Jesus' birth, there is now light. Now John did a clever bit of writing here. In verse 1, he made that statement that all the philosophers of his day could agree with. And he went on to shine the light of Jesus upon their own assumptions, upon their own philosophical structure. And he's shown that, yes, logic and reasoning are gifts that come from God, as you all rightly attribute it. But God is so much more than just logic and reasoning. And it's only one small part of the life that he has given us. It's one tool in the toolbox. In one aspect, the darkness in John's time and in ours is the belief that our lives are dictated by the natural order of the universe. Without God, without religion, without any structure of that, we would be forced, we are forced to describe life in terms that our lives are dictated by the chemical reactions in our bodies and around us and by the interactive quarks of the quantum particles in, in the entire creation and all of the universe and all of matter. In fact, that is an actual scientific theory being put forward that none of us have a choice right now. All it is is how our body, how the quantum particles of our body interact with the matter around us and that determines our fate for us. But God himself coming in the flesh and then going on to do miracles, which by their very definition are violations of the law of nature, shows God's sovereignty over creation. How he can use creation, he can use matter, he can use chemical reactions, he can use whatever he wants to accomplish his will, regardless of how we've classified a certain interaction, whether we've called it a law of nature or not. He doesn't care. He will use it the way he wants to. And because of that, he gives us the hope that that there is a loving God working. That our lives aren't just a meaningless existence 
dictated for us by how these interactions of particles and molecules are coming together. But this is still only just a small part of what John's talking about. When he talks about this metaphor of light versus darkness, he's, he's bringing forth something so much bigger going on. And in verse 5, he writes that the darkness has not overcome it, which would emphasize that the darkness is in fact making conscious action. It's not passive. It's not just letting things go as they may, but there is a conscious action to the darkness and strategy behind it. And so this begs the question, what is this darkness? Well, let's look in verse 5, and, and when we study this, as we dig into this, we find that it parallels a statement that Jesus made to Peter, one of the other disciples, over in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Peter, in this scenario, has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus responds to him by saying, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, And on this rock, Peter, or another way of putting this, on this confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So in this same manner as how John is relating to the statement in verse 5 here, the battle between light and darkness is a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of sin, which leads to hell. This is a battle that humanity so clearly relates to. This is a struggle that is so innate within our being that we so consciously or subconsciously adhere to and relate with and, and, and know exactly what talk, it's talking about. And this is evidence through our storytelling. We could go back through the centuries, through the millennia, and talk about all the different popular stories that have this theme or motive, but I'm going to try to hit a few of ones from modern-day times that hopefully you've heard of or seen at least one of these. Um, one of the stories that has this very same theme in it is the Lord of the Rings. And in the big battle scene of the Siege of Rohan or the Siege of Gondor, you've got the armies of, of Mordor coming against the last cities of light. Where there's Harry Potter and the Battle of Hogwarts and you have Voldemort and all of his evil people coming against the last bastion of lights and, and the, the symbol of hope in the region. Or you've got Marvel and you've got Captain America standing alone against all of Thanos' army. Or you've got Star Wars. And I'm not going to spoil the most recent one because I haven't seen it. But there's the Battle of Hoth in the original trilogies. Or in The Last Jedi, there's Luke facing off against the entire First Order by himself. In each of these situations, the darkness feels overwhelming. And the light seems like just a small flicker that's struggling to survive the onslaught. And we can see these stories, lines playing out in our own lives. There's a reason why we relate to them, why they're so compelling to us, because we see them playing out. There seems to be forces beyond our control that, that are working to polarize our country and our world when, when nobody really truly, as I've heard, admits or desires for us to be polarized, for us to turn against each other. And yet it still happens. Looking back through the previous decades, there's various drug epidemics from cocaine to heroin to opioids, which wreak havoc upon our communities. Right now, we're experiencing record levels of anxiety, depression, and loneliness in our society, and not just in the youth 
but in seniors as well. And as recently discovered here and now in the year 2019, as unbelievable as it is, there's the existence of re-education camps, which seem a whole lot more like thinly veiled concentration camps in China, holding more than three million, three million Uyghurs. And anyone who dares to speak out against them, like one football star dared to do, is ostracized by their country, by their club, by their teammates, by anyone around them, because everyone's afraid of hurting their bottom line. How do you come against darkness when it seems like everyone's agreeing to worship money? But this is not the scene that Jesus or John describes. They are not describing a scene where light is seemingly going to be snuffed out by the darkness, in danger of that. No, not at all. In Matthew, Jesus describes the kingdom of sin as the gates of hell. Just to point out the obvious here, gates are not something you bring with you in an army if you're going on the offensive. Gates are a defensive structure. Darkness is not on the attack here. Darkness is on the verge of falling. The more accurate picture of the reality of the world is that of Normandy. There's an empire that history has no reservation in calling evil, is desperately trying to prevent its enemies from breaking through its defenses. And yet, the force of the allies is so overwhelming that they break the gates open as they land and they establish a stronghold on those beaches from which the entire continent of Europe is about to be liberated. At that moment, Nazi Germany had lost. And though they would continue fighting, it was inevitable what the outcome was going to be. Through Jesus' birth, the light has come into the world. And the end of the war is known. The darkness has lost. And it will continue fighting for as long as it can, as long as it exists as a kingdom. But the result will not change. Jesus has come into the world and nothing can stop him. But if this is the reality as we believe it is, why does the darkness still feel overwhelming? Why is there still that sense of impending doom that we relate with so closely? In the first five verses of this chapter, John paints a sweeping picture of the cosmic reality of Jesus' authority and that overarching battle between light and darkness, which engages all of creation. But then in verse 6, he goes from this massive picture and he focuses down in on one single man, which is a really big jump to make. And he narrows the scope of the story down to John the Baptist in the wilderness where there's nobody living bearing witness to the light. And then from there, he gradually grows his picture 
And he weaves Jesus in through this. In verse 11, he expands out to a small group of people. And, and though this small group of people rejected Jesus, undoubtedly there, became, there was, became a small group of people who did believe. And from those people, that small group of people who did start to believe, we would think of as the disciples and the apostles and, and growing from there, then he goes out and John addresses all who are believers of Jesus, a much greater crowd now. And how they are all brought into God's family in verse 12. And in this, in this gradual expansion of address and of how Jesus is working in among the people groups, we see the way in which God is working in this world. And how his work is so fundamentally different than how the kingdom of sin works. Our adversary, the ruler in this kingdom of darkness, he attacks from the top down. That's a big statement to make, and, and we'll explore it more when we go in our series on spiritual warfare in Lent and during, in March. And so if you want to come and listen to that, I would encourage you to come engage. But God does something completely different. He doesn't go after the ones at the top. He comes and starts at the bottom, and he builds up. Spreading the light from just one person to the next eventually getting to be a group of people. And as he expands it out from those lowly people, remember, Jesus didn't come for the rich, for the people who were self-sufficient. He came for the people who knew they needed him, who were poor and destitute and have no other place to turn for hope. And as he spreads out from those people, and it builds up and it builds up, and as we can see through history, eventually it reaches up into the top. But God's not working from the top down, from the, from the governments, from the kingdoms, from the people in offices first. He's working through you and me in the everyday actions that we do until all of creation is illuminated by his light, which we'll illustrate together in a few minutes when we sing Holy, Holy Night. And it's through this worldwide family that God builds his kingdom here on earth. In verse 16, he talks about how he pours out his grace upon grace to us and through us to the people that we rub shoulders with, to our community, to our neighbors, to our fellow brothers and sisters. The darkness feels overwhelming because we continually hear about leaders falling, government conspiracies to cover things up or to protect their own self-interest or, or one-off acts of extreme evil happening. But the victory of the kingdom of God was established through the simple birth of Jesus. And in his life, through the faithful obedience, all the way to death on the cross. And from there, God used him and raised him up from the dead. And in that life that he has given through Jesus, each and every one of us are called to share in that life. To be that light shining in the darkness. To spread as an individual to a community, to a group, to a worldwide family. Until the whole world is lit with his light. Why do we celebrate Jesus at Christmas? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we make such a big deal of Jesus' birth? Because before him was darkness. But now after him we have hope. And in that hope, we see the light. And from that light, brothers and sisters, we get to encounter and have a relationship with our creator, 
the one who loves us more than we even knew possible. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for defying what should be possible and coming into this world in the flesh, becoming one of us, for dying for us and for being raised from the dead again, that we might have life, that we might have hope, that this overwhelming darkness, we can see it for what it is, expose it through your light. And know that the victory is yours. Dear Father, help us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. In these times when we falter, when we fail, when we doubt, minister to us, Lord. You know how weak we are. You know how frail we are. You know how much we need your help. It is in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.